Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black. It is not Monday this time when we're recording. It's Tuesday, January 4th. As I mentioned in a previous podcast that I actually released the day of us recording this podcast, we had a few scheduling conflicts, a few things going on in our personal lives. So Tyler Rucker and I couldn't record on our usual Monday day. However, he's being a trooper. I'm being a trooper. We're coming together, joining forces for another discussion around my morning dunk column. Tyler, how are you doing, my friend? Are, are, are you pumped to talk about some guys who are, quite frankly, in your neck of the woods? The corner you've claimed for on the No Ceilings team is the foreign relations corner. So I would hope you're ready to talk about some of these guys tonight. I'm ready to roll. You know, it, it felt weird yesterday, like there was a big hole missing without doing the uh, the Monday ritual of recording with you. But like you said, life happens. We had to kind of curveball and make some scheduling adjustments. And I'm pumped to talk about these guys. You got another good slate for the morning dunk on no ceiling. So let's get after it, Nathan. Let's let's have some fun. If you haven't subscribed yet to the Substack, noceilings.substack.com, I put up another good edition of the morning dunk. I, I continue to pour my soul into these things every Sunday. And the whole mission behind this column, I had said at the beginning when I started writing the morning dunk that every now and then I wanted to check in on some of the guys in the other leagues that were scouting. So that would be um, the G League with the G League Ignite team, some various leagues overseas, as well as overtime elite in the case of Jean Montero, one of the point guards that we're evaluating for the first round of the draft. So every now and then, just want to do a little bit of a check-in. I know my column's usually focused on updating the audience as to some of the performances that happened in uh, college basketball domestically in the previous week, kind of setting the scene for what's to come in the upcoming week. But every now and then, we'll do a little bit of a check-in. So that's what I did this time around. I highlighted eight different guys. We're going to focus on the international section that I wrote about. That would include John Montero. I also wrote about Nikola Jovic, Usman Diang, and Hugo Basson. The other guys referring to the G League section of the column, I talked about Jaden Hardy with Matt Penny on one of the previous editions of the podcast. I'm actually going to be running through Dyson Daniels with Chuck from Chuck and Darts. I'm recording that podcast tomorrow, so I'm sure that one's going to be a thriller and a half. You know, every time him and I get together, Rucker, it's it, it's a two-hour sit-down. You better, you better grab popcorn, grab a case of beer, have it right next to you. You better be ready to, to listen to long-form draft conversation. And then Marjan Beauchamp, we, we've also kind of talked about him a little bit. Certainly Rucker and I have on this podcast. The last name we will actually bring up a little bit towards the end. I just want to highlight him. I know I did in the previous Big Board podcast that I just released today. Michael Foster Jr., I do want to say a few words about him. But without further ado, let's dive in, Tyler, mm-hmm. to with, with Nikola Jovic. He's somebody who you're actually going to be writing a foreign relations piece about this week. So this is excellent timing by me. And completely coincidental. Though. I didn't even didn't even know you're going to be putting out that piece this week, but it's just a perfect storm for us to be able to talk about him. I released the the 2.0 edition of my big board yesterday. Uh, today, we're going to be putting out a no ceilings composite big board later this week. So it's it's definitely good to to catch up on some of these other guys that we know we're going to be ranking on the board. Jovic for me was 10 on the first edition of my board. He slid slightly 
to 13 this time around. That's more so, in my opinion, because of some of the other names that I think have just now, I don't want to necessarily say the word outplayed, you know, fully outright, because Jovic has struggled by some of the numbers overseas a little bit recently, but some of these other domestic college prospects have just been putting up absurd stat lines. Like we've talked about Benedict Mathur on this podcast. We've, we've talked about Johnny Davis. Some of these guys have just bumped him out of the spot that I had him in previously, but I still think Jovic is a lottery-level prospect, the 6'10", 6'10", 205 pounds, Shot maker off the bounce, incredibly confident, borderline cocky at times, but regardless, he's a menace on the court. He wants to dunk it over you. He wants to hammer that ball home. He's not anybody I consider a quote-unquote lockdown defender, but he does at least give effort. And then he's one of those smart, heady basketball players. He keeps his head up, keeps his head on a swivel, and passing the basketball as well. He makes some great reads, uh, both out of like inverted style pick and rolls as well as passing in different isolation situations when he's on an island defenses try to make everything tough around him. He can still make the right play big part because obviously he can see over the defense and he can make things happen, but he does have that touch on his passes that you look for in one of these jumbo playmakers that it seems like everyone around the NBA craves nowadays. So I think all things considered, he still has to be, in the lottery conversation. Now, as I alluded to, some of his numbers are down in terms of his overall shooting from the field and his free throw percentage right now playing for Mega BMAX, although his three-point percentage is actually uptick a little bit now over recent weeks. He's now up to 37.7% from the three-point line. He's taken a little over four, three attempts per game, so you do like to see that. Um, but I know some people have been a little disappointed with them of late when, when they've gone to watch some of the more recent film Rucker. Where are you at on Jovic right now as you're kind of digging back into some of his film and, and, and getting ready to write some words about him for the No Ceilings Substack? You know, this was a guy that he came into the year and I, I, I kind of thought he was going to be like the international draft darling of this class. And when you watch Jovic, there's plenty of intrigue right away. You know, 6'10". He moves like he's a, a guard. He, he's very fluid. He's got playmaking potential and the outside shots coming along. It's, it's fluid. It's smooth. You know, there's definitely tools there. You can understand the excitement. Um, you know, this was a guy that a lot of people thought was potentially a top 10 pick just with all the tools, his youth, you know, playing for Mega Baymax like you hinted at. I'm excited to write about him. You know, I, I wanted to keep doing these foreign relation pieces on no ceilings to kind of give everyone an update of what's going on overseas. And Jovic was one that I've had in my mind for a long time, but I just wanted to get as much, you know, of a game sample or a slate of production that I could look at. And, you know, watching him, like you've hinted, Nathan, I think the talent was never in question. It was just the consistency throughout the entire year. And that's kind of been the situation I've been asking around. And that's the feedback I've been getting from guys around the industry that I respect. They're like, hey, we, we love the kid. It's just the up and down play has been driving us a little crazy. Now, you go back and look at his game logs throughout the year. He's got some really nice performances. He also has some duds where it's just, you know, finishes the game one for three from the field and has five points. But you're looking at his game log, you know, last four games, he's he started to finally find that stretch of consistent performances. And this is something that I think scouts, NBA personnel, they've been waiting for this stretch. 
And, you know, I had him, you know, probably around the lottery in the beginning of the year. I moved them down just because I was waiting for that stretch. And this is the type of, you know, stretch run he's having right now that he could start climbing back up boards. He could start making some more momentum. You know, recently had a really impressive 25-point performance against Split. Um, before that, he had a game where he finished with 16-9-7 and seven while shooting 5 for 7 from the field. So, I mean, like you're saying – you can tell the confidence with his shot. Like he, he will pull it from deep, like off the dribble. He's got some shiftiness. There's a lot of tools. I just think NBA teams want to see him on a more consistent level because this is a young guy, you know, like I said, 6'10". Uh, he's 18 right now. He's probably going to be 19 around draft day. It, it, there's a lot of tools. I'm very excited to write about him. Um, I, I think this is a guy, like I said before, I think this is a guy that can start making some noise if his play keeps up at this pace. So when you flip on the tape, the conclusion I keep coming back to is maybe, maybe he's not this, you know, second or third option type Mm -hmm. starter on a really good NBA team, but he is somebody who I feel can fill a role in, in, in some of his best games, he reminds me a lot of what Denny Avdia is in his best games, that, that, that role player playing that forward spot, he's at his best, not necessarily setting the table for everyone else, but when he can just make quick decisions once he gets the ball in his hands, if, if he can catch the ball, get on the move, maybe make a, a decision within like, like a second, second and a half. And then obviously we know about some of the scoring potential. We know what he can do off the dribble, but I think, I think the set shot, is something that has started to come around for him. And I think it's going to be a weapon of his in time in the NBA. So my question for you, Tyler, how do you actually see him fitting within the construct of of an NBA team? Like, do you think he's somebody who naturally just needs the ball in his hands to feel more comfortable within an offense? Or do you think he can kind of blend in at times similar to what Avdi has had to do now with, with the Washington Wizards? And by the way, he was he was a lottery pick in the relatively the same range that we're talking about with Jovic. Like he was pick nine. I think a lot of people have Jovic in like that 10 to, to 14 range right now if they're high on. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's, you know, I'm going to do a deep film dive tonight, probably travel down a rabbit hole with a lot of Mega, Mega Baymax film. But that's what I'm going into this film dive thinking. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, what are you drafting him as? Are you drafting him as someone that can turn into this offensive weapon? Are you thinking of him as more of like a versatile complementary piece that can make an impact in a number of different ways? Because, you know, you hinted at it with Denny Avdia. You know, I loved Avdia because I thought he was a guy that, made your team better without having the ball in his hands. And when he got the ball in his hands, he didn't need to just score to make your team better. He could also make the right decisions. He had great vision. I just need to see that with Jovic because, you know, if he's not scoring, when you just look at box scores, like he he has some games where you're like, okay, that is interesting where, you know, where he plays 32 minutes and gets two rebounds and five points. And then all of a sudden, you look later and he plays the same amount of game or minutes and drops 25. So you just kind of have to figure out how is he going to make an impact without scoring? And that's what I'm going into this watching with Jovic. I, I need to try to figure out, you know, what is an NBA team potentially going to see in this kid moving forward? What is his NBA role if he continues to develop, you know, upward, trend upwards? So I'm like you, I, I think, 
right now I'd probably be saying he's going to be drafted at this complimentary piece that can potentially stretch the floor and make the right reads, but it's the verdict still out. And I, I think he's going to have to continue to prove to NBA teams. Like I talked about before, just the consistency because teams don't want this up and down roller coaster guy that could potentially, you know, disappear in games. They need someone that's going to make an impact and have this upside that they could potentially reach. He he is flashy. He mm-hmm. he's not he's not an, an an otherworldly athlete, but he does have that that flair that pizzazz to his game when he really gets it going. He is going to have to rein in a little bit of that once he gets to the NBA. That's probably the biggest thing that's contributed to him shooting under forty five percent over the last two years that we've been evaluating him now. Is he settles for a lot of those jump shots? It's a very similar criticism to. What we give Paolo Bancaro now, Jovic isn't obviously as physically gifted as Paolo, but he's still a 6'10 guy who can he can take a mismatch off the bounce. He can finish inside against relatively similar size to smaller players. If that's the type of matchup that he gets, he needs to consistently take his man more inside and not settle for some of those really tough jumpers because that's not where consistent offense is going to come from and maybe playing a lesser role in an NBA team, maybe playing more within structure, not necessarily be looked at as one of the better guys on the floor. Maybe if he is like the fourth or the fifth man on that team, maybe that is enough to, to reel him in and, and he can start taking more effective and, and, and better choices with his shot selection and making more of those shots in time. The, the it remains to be seen what his NBA game exactly is going to look like, but Given some of the things that you said, Tyler, you're not ready to give up on him as a lottery prospect. I'm not ready to give up on him as a lottery prospect. I know some of the people on our No Ceilings team have been a little lower on him up to this point. They question, you know, how how good of an athlete really is he? If some of that doesn't translate, how is that going to affect his impact on both ends of the floor in the NBA? I'm not willing to go as, to, as far as to say that those things are definitely going to hinder his overall performance when he comes stateside, I think we've seen plenty of examples now up to this point where guys with enough traditional size and who are smart enough at processing the game don't always need to be the quickest or the lightest players on the feet. So we'll see what happens as we continue to evaluate him through this process. The next player that I wrote about, Tyler, on the morning dunk was John Montero, who I included in this section because of Obviously, his backstory, ultimately, now he's in the States playing with the Overtime Elite League. So he's here now. We're going to evaluate him now. But I got to be honest with you, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording the podcast. I've gotten around to Ty Ty Washington being the best, quote-unquote, point guard Mm -hmm. in this class, the guy who I'm entrusting the most confidence with. I have Washington as number 12 on the big board right now, whether he stays at 12, whether he moves down slightly because of some other performances if he gets to, as we get to the next edition of the big board. Excuse me. That remains to be seen. But some of these other names that we can talk about, and, and I'm including Jean Montero in this group, but Jean Montero, Kennedy Chandler, J.D. Davison. I've seen enough examples on tape to make me want to buy out of these guys being starting caliber point guards in the NBA. And before... I just make this a complete negative rant about Montero. I can't be truly and completely negative because when you do flip on some of his tape, he does some exciting things on the court, man. He gets people involved, not just 
with some of his flashy jump shooting, but also some of the passes he wants to make. He's a daring passer. He's certainly not afraid to try things in the half court once he makes the right read. The problem is sometimes he gets a little too fancy and he gets a little too careless with, with making some of those passes or with the basketball, and it leads to turnovers. Now, I'm surprised. Shout out to Hunter Cruz, who has compiled um, different overtime elite statistics on his new website, the 60and36.com. Definitely go and check that out if you want to see some more of these stats. I'm surprised that he's only averaging 3.7 turnovers per game to 6.1 assists because it feels like there's not as much balance to, to, to that. I'm actually surprised he's closer to a, a two-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio than, than not. Um, but it's just so apparent when you watch some of the film that he really does try to do too much at times. He can be overmatched. The jump shot, while it's definitely looking better up to this point, it's still not perfectly there for him. He can struggle to finish inside a little bit. His true shooting percentage is only 55% which isn't terrible for a guard, particularly his size. He's listed at 6'2", whether he's actually 6'2". I definitely have some questions about that, but it's certainly not the best percentage. Um, I would like to have a better read in terms of what he's actually shooting from three-point range in the overtime elite. I know he certainly has some up-and-down games from range as well, but before he came over stateside, his three-point shot wasn't one of his strengths, so it really was about his craftiness using some of that burst inside the arc once he got past that initial screen to set up everything for himself as well as everybody else. But I just haven't seen him as that high level of a decision maker. I'm not fully buying into the scoring ability at the next level. I just don't know if he's if he gets himself over the threshold of starting caliber NBA point guard. And if you're taking John Montero anywhere in like the 9 to 14 range where a lot of people still kind of have him on their board, that's telling me you definitely think that he's a starting point guard in the NBA. I just can't get there. That's why I have him in that clump of those three in like 20 to 22 range right now on my board. What are some of your more updated thoughts on, on Montero, Tyler? Where are you kind of at with, with all this? I think this is going to be the mystery man of the draft because there's just so many questions with you know, the overtime elite, you know, we're going to be basically picking that apart all year just because, you know, the lack of film. Shout out to the overtime elite. Thank you, guys. Um, but it, it's just becoming difficult because you're seeing those highlights or games that, you know, he's playing against. You're seeing the competition level. So we're going to have plenty of questions about that. Um, yeah, by, by the way, I'm glad you said that because he has some of the highest of highs that you can point to on highlights from players in this class, but he also has some of the lowest of lows. He makes right. some boneheaded, some really dumb decisions against the equivalent of high school level competition. So even when we want to give some of these prospects shit about, well, they're dominating a bunch of mid-majors, but it's not high-major competition. In the case of like a Keegan Murray, or we want to give Pat Baldwin – we want to see him do a little more against better competition. If he has a game where he's six for six from three point range against the mid major, but he's only putting up like 10 points against a better team. We want to have all of those conversations, but at the same time that we have to hold everybody to the same standard. If Montero is not living up to the higher standard we have for him as a potential lottery prospect point guard, and he's doing, and he's making a lot of these mistakes against much lesser competition than even like the mid major college teams in the country, then what are we doing here? Like that has to be factored into the evaluation. Right. I, I completely agree with you. And I think 
the overtime stuff's frustrating um, because you, you watch him there and you're like, okay, yeah, this guy just looks like he's probably the best player on the court, what he's supposed to be. Yep. So, you know, it, it's been puzzling me. So then I, I went back last year and I started watching his film when he was playing in the third division in Spain. And, and you know, when you watch that player, you're really intrigued because there's a sensational feel for the game. There's some freakish passing vision. There's, there's a really fun talent there. But I come around to the same point as you, Nathan. I, I get to a point of like, okay, where am I drafting this guy? And what is his role? Am I drafting him to be an NBA starting point guard right You know, early on? Am I drafting him kind of to be this roll of the dice where I think we're getting good value and it's you know immediate depth that turns into maybe a winning lottery ticket later? I just don't know with Montero yet. And I... I've I've talked to you about this before. There's always this one guy that heats up during the pre-draft process when they get to get a chance to be right in front of, you know, decision makers and NBA front offices. I think Montero could be that guy. I, I think teams could finally get the chance to see him up close and personal, not just at overtime elite, but put him through workouts, see what he really can do and maybe this is the type of guy that heats up and starts to climb up boards a little bit. Now, you know, I, I've got him around the late lottery, probably trending towards the 20s. And I think that's the range. I just kind of have him at right now until I get to watch him further. But, you know, I've, I don't know. I, I, it's just one of those guys that you're going to continue to be puzzled about because you're going to say, okay, what is he playing against? And then if someone wants to go back and look at what he was playing against in the third division of Spain, it's like, well, which one's better? You know, you could argue that that division might be better than what he's playing with with the overtime elite. So I don't know. Is that more of a question to ask? Because I I do agree with you on that point. And Rafael Barlow did a fantastic video on him preseason over at NBA Draft Junkies. If anybody hasn't watched that on YouTube, please go and do so because it's a great resource for information. But pulling a lot of film from him overseas, there, there are times, even in some of those clips, where he gets a little bit adventurous when it comes to passing the ball. But there are other times where he looks a lot more disciplined than what I've seen from some of the overtime elite film. And he's in, he's in a situation where you, you do say we, we have a lack of full game film from overtime, but at the end of the day, overtime's still a social media driven company. They want clips. They want highlights to be able to market these guys as well as in turn market their company. He, he's sort of in this highlight factory that might be encouraging him to do things a little more adventurously. I don't have a firm concrete answer, to, to, to that statement, I'm not just trying to, to peddle propaganda over here and, and, and say something negative entirely, but it is something that you, you think about when you watch some of these highlights and you wonder if he was in a more structured environment, would he look better overall as a point guard and a leader, and how would that factor into our evaluations? Would he definitely be a lottery guy? I think it's fair, fair questions, fair criticism to have. Yeah, I'm right there with you because – you can definitely see sometimes when you're watching the overtime elite games, like he gets wild and you could see that last year when he was playing in the third division in Spain. I mean, he, he has that creativity, the vision, but he also gets a little erratic with it. And, you know, he over 24 games last year, he averaged 18, five and four with two and a half steals in around 29 minutes. So, I mean, he can produce, he can put he up has numbers. Talent. He, 100% he, has, has talent. he has the talent to, 
He's trending to be a first-round pick. There's talent there for sure. We're just trying to figure out what type of talent is this moving forward. You know, you, you made the reference earlier. Uh, you've seen him listed from 6'2 to 6'4. And it, when you're a point guard and a primary ball handler, that's a big difference. Like, if he's coming in at 6'3 and a half in measures of that, that's a big difference than 6'2, you know? so Especially when he, he's not the longest of guards. Right. He's not right. the biggest, the bulkiest of guards. I, he, he He's quick, but he's not, like, ultra quick. So right, that, right. that absolutely factors into it. I, I definitely want watching him – this year compared to last year, I was more intrigued with the film last year overseas because like you said, it looked a little bit more structured. It looked the flashes, the plays were really, really nice. I mean, some, some reads he had, he knew where the ball was going before he even caught the, you know, initial pass. So this year I'm like you, I am just kind of pumping the brakes with the overtime elite because it's a lot of, you know, like you're saying, marketing and a lot of flash and they got the new, you know, home court it's all unbelievable so i don't know it's just one of those situations where yeah he's gonna put up some big numbers right now but i'm almost more intrigued with what he did last year and there's definitely some wiggle in his game he's got some shiftiness i mean he can explode out of some of his hesitations and cuts like i i think the talent's there like you're saying it's just one of these guys like i said he's gonna be a mystery man we're gonna have to keep monitoring him and try to keep a pulse on the whole situation. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm being very open and honest as and, and revealing to an extent as a scout where I'm rightfully admitting I don't know how to effectively evaluate Montero and some of these other guys in this overtime elite situation. It's it's definitely there's more of a blurred line trying to evaluate somebody like Montero against this level of competition than it is for him to be even on like a mid-major type of roster in, in college basketball where we trust the environment, we trust the coaching more, we trust the players that he has around him. It's it, it it's more unknown than I think I initially expected, even more so unknown. Like people had questions about when the G League Ignite team first popped up. Well, at least the Ignite team is is scrimmaging and or playing against grown men. And right. it's it's a it's a really tough environment as you talked about on on your podcast, Tyler, with with, with your friend Kyle Nishimoto. It's just the these old these grown men are trying to earn opportunities in professional leagues or even in the NBA to make a paycheck, to make a living, to put food on the table for their families. It's 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 way different than playing against high school level competition in a setting that is likely encouraging those highlight plays more than structured basketball at times. So I'm struggling with it. I'm going to continue to struggle with it. Maybe I go back, maybe some more film becomes available and I ultimately change my mind about Montero and I uh, swap them up a few other spots of the board. But I mean, if I take a look at some of these other guys that I have in that range, I mean, Keegan Murray, I have at 14, Trevor Keels, I have at 15, Dyson Daniels, 16, Caleb Houston, Wendell Moore, Tari Eason is the newcomer in, in that range at 19. And then I have Montero. So like some of these guys who have a more proven track record in college basketball in an environment that I trust to evaluate more. They have more size. They are multi-skilled players. And I feel like when you're evaluating guys for those two through four spots to come into the NBA, those are – nothing's easy in the NBA. But they're easier positions to fill because of – how plug and play they are more so than being a point guard in the league or being a center in the league. So it's a very, it's a tougher evaluation. 
No, I, I, I'm complete agreement with you because, you know, a guy you mentioned in that ballpark where I think Montero's probably going to be thrown around in that similar range, you know, Trevor Keels isn't really thriving as an outside shooter, but we can project what he's going to be at the next level. He's going to be this guy that kind of is a glue guy that gets after it defensively, has upside offensively. We kind of know what he's going to do. Like he's going to be this asset that teams are going to want because of his skill set. Montero, we still have all these questions. And not to mention Keels is 6'5 and built like a brick shithouse. But I, I just have these questions with Montero of like, when is the range? When is it time that comparing to that type of, you know, range in the, in the draft, when is he coming off the board compared to those other guys? And I think that's going to be a question we have to monitor throughout the entire rest of the draft year. I can't wait for, for more of the pre-draft process when he starts getting in for workouts and we start hearing some, some of the buzz. From, it's going to happen. Uh, it is going to happen. And it's either going to be one way or the other, because I think too many teams have questions right now. And, you know, when they get, when they get him in a gym by himself, I'm sure Montero is going to, do some things to uh, get people excited in a hurry. So let's move to two players that we want to talk about tonight, both mm-hmm. playing in the NBL, mm-hmm. both playing on the same team, mm-hmm. I might add, which is also really intriguing. We'll start with the quote-unquote more disappointing of the two prospects, and then we'll, we'll move to the other one. But Usman Dieng, this was a guy I had on my preseason and then training Transitioning to the 1.0 edition of my board. I've said this multiple times. I try to keep my quote-unquote first big board for the year as close to my preseason board as possible because I want to get myself away from some of those overreactions that we all have now. Do I still make like one or two? Technically, yes, because I, I, I was quick to overreact and move AJ Griffin down, skyrocket him down my board when I probably shouldn't have. We all make mistakes. We did that podcast together where I admitted some of my, my overreactions, but I try to distance myself from that as much as possible. So I left Diang at 14 on my board because he's a 6'9 wing who can really shoot it from deep. Some of the film that you saw preseason before he was playing some of this action in the NBA, you saw some of the passing ability, his court vision. He was doing a lot of really intriguing things for a 6'9 wing to do, and it just has not translated in the opportunities that he's gotten now. He's not even playing a big role for the Breakers, and obviously any team in the NBL, there are a lot more competitive environments than you would initially think. Like RJ Hampton didn't even have like a big role for, for his team before he ultimately got to the NBA, and, and I would say that RJ Hampton had the ceiling in that draft class of like a top five, top seven pick. So I would consider that talent gap, although Diang has, you know, obviously better size to him. I think he has better pure shooting ability than somebody like Hampton, but the athletic gap, the overall skill gap, I'd say was considerably wider between those two. And you didn't even see you didn't even see RJ Hampton have a significant role when he was in the NBL. So Diang's playing 17 minutes a night. He's only averaging 3.3 points. Um, 2.17 rebounds and 0.83 assists. I'm getting these numbers off of Real GM. And then when you look at the shooting statistics, 21.6% from the field, under 10% from three-point range, 50% from the free throw line. This just seems like another situation for somebody who is really struggling to adjust to the next level of basketball. He's kind of lost his confidence. When you flip on the film, 
there are a few clips you can point out, and I've seen some of these float around on social media, especially the last few days, where he catches the ball, he's a little more patient with it, he actually sizes his man up, goes through a few dribble moves, steps back or steps forward, takes one or two dribbles into a pull-up jumper, and he knocks it down. And he looks like that confident type of wing that we were initially projecting in like late lottery range. But way more often than not, you see him want to immediately do something or jack up a shot in like the second he gets the ball in his hands. Like he's completely uncomfortable with what's going on around him. And it's like I get Peyton Watson type of vibes. Mm-hmm. And the, the worst Peyton Watson type of vibes when I watch some of this Dang film here in, in the NBL. And it just strikes me. It strikes me as somebody who I don't think we should fully give up on somebody like Dang, just like you and I talked about at length on, on this podcast. We don't want to give up on somebody like Watson either. Just maybe not this year. Maybe mm-hmm. Dang takes the approach to wait another year to declare for the draft, come back like some of the other international prospects. Maybe if, if he's confident with what he knows he needs to work on and improve in his game, maybe he does rock it up next year back into that lottery range and, and maybe he can avoid taking a fall, at least what seems to be a public fall on, on draft Twitter with somebody like a Roko Prakashan, for example. Maybe he can avoid some of those pitfalls. But I just feel like the more I watch him, the more I see some of these other guys and the more I, I, I understand and I fully realize the, the thresholds that need to be crossed or cleared to actually earn rotation minutes in the NBA, the more I just don't think he's ready quite yet to come out in the draft. Let's say you. Yeah. I mean, th- there was two prospects. We're going to talk about the other one probably soon, but you know, Diang coming from France was the hot name in draft circles before the NBL season started out. A lot of teams around the NBA and scouts that I had talked to were very excited to get a look at him. And, you know, watching him last year with France, watching that film, I, I was very intrigued like a lot of people, but I was just like, boy, he is skinny. And mm-hmm. I was just like the way he played the game. I was like, this could be a rude awakening. And, you know, I'm not trying to say like, I told you so, because I never want to be right about that. But, you know, we did that previous episode with Raphael and I kind of brought up the question, Raphael, like, you know, could you see, you know, Hugo Besson potentially translating better than someone like Diang, where it's a more suitable style of play compared to like how they play currently and he, he's like well yeah, you 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 and Raphael were jumping out of your shares to talk about Hugo let's yeah let's, let's be perfectly I I'm already jumping out to bring him up soon so <laughs> I, I hear you but just talk focus on Diang it's just one of those cases where very young you know 18 year old six nine super skinny now he's just getting thrown into the wolves and this is a different type of monster playing in an NBL. And like you hinted on before, we saw... Hit, hit, us, hit us with your favorite phrase, Tyler. Give us that phrase. No, I mean, this one takes real time. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, and I'm not trying to downplay Diang. It's just, you can see the flashes are great, but they're so, like, rare. It, it's like a blue moon when it comes around. It's just, he's just going to take a lot of time. There you go, Nathan. But... I understand. I'm not surprised by the just kind of the rude awakening he's had. He's had some flashes where you could see the tools, the upside. He's still very young. So, yes, this could be just a situation where he needs another year. He needs to work on his frame. He needs just, you know, this whole 
different type of development where it's all of a sudden next year, he, maybe he goes the Hugo Besson route and spends some time over year, overseas. And then all of a sudden comes back and looks like the guy that a lot of people thought, because like, like six, nine with handles and potentially an outside shot, he's got tools. It's just, and he, yeah, he can create shots. He can do things off the bounce. He's, he's not this one dimensional shooter that, I had wanted to initially project him as like, I didn't have as much confidence, I think than, than you or some other people in all of these things that he can do off the bounce, but he's shown examples again, rare flashes, but in those rare flashes that we've seen on film already playing for, for the breakers, he has shown an ability to size somebody up and hit tough shots off the bounce. So he's not this pure one dimensional shooter where if it's not falling, then he shouldn't be able to contribute in other areas of the floor. He's a smart decision maker. He has vision. It's six nine. He can pass on the move. There are parts to his game that still really intrigue me. I think you you nailed it on the head the best, Tyler, when you said that physically you just don't think he's ready right now. And I'm in 100% agreement with that. Yeah, and I don't think physically he's ready. I don't even know if he's mentally ready right now because, you know, I've asked around and some people have just told me, you know, he's kind of a – kind of a quiet kid and it looks like the confidence really isn't there right now and that's understandable if you're struggling and you're not playing a lot or producing at a high level that you know you can and you're still trying to adjust to a physical playing style you know i've asked people around the league like what's up with yang and the common thing i've got told is just like he looks like he's in another world and like people are trying to be polite when they tell me that it's just like he is in another galaxy like he is trying to adjust to a whole different element and you can understand when you're this young teenager that's not physically built and you're going against really tough opponents on a nightly basis so we're we're rooting for him to all of a sudden find that confidence find that stretch of impressive games it just might not be this year because like you were saying earlier when you brought up rj hampton like hampton struggled but he was still taking some strides and showing flashes of being able i still to- had hampton as like number seven i think around there on my board when it was mm-hmm. all said and done because of what you saw on the tape when you flipped it on sure he might not have put together a consistent role and played heavy minutes for his team but the flashes you saw they it was more than one or two flashes per game. He, he right. had some really great moments on the court. Yeah, I mean, and we're talking about Deang, you know. His his best game was an 8.6 rebound game in, in 28 minutes where he took two shots. So, I, I mean, it's just he's had some duds. It just hasn't really been there yet. So, hopefully we get to see a game where all of a sudden everything comes to, you know, life. But it just might not be this year. And the good thing is he's very young like we said before so or it could be this year it could be later on this year we may just look i will i will i won't lump you in tyler i'll say that i may just look like an asshole for bringing up this topic and we get to throw him right back in the first round conversation because a lot of these other freshmen who we could talk about who have had lackluster starts to this season i'm not going to rule anybody out i'm jumping especially into that late first conversation like we've talked at length off the air that like the 20 to 45 or 50 ranges on our boards are completely wide open. And I think that's because we're still trying to figure out what tiers of prospects these guys ultimately fall into. Like who's worthy of being like a specialist type of player or six man type of player in the NBA one day, like the first guy off of a bench, are they more of like a seventh or ninth man? Like, like they are on, 
they, they are part of an NBA rotation. They could be part of a good rotation, but they're not quite starter level or six-man level. Or are these guys who are going to take some time this season, they're going to be kind of riding the pine type of guys. They're going to be on the end of the bench. Like we're trying to, We're still trying to figure a lot of this out, and that comes back to consistency and production. And in the case of Dieng, we're just not seeing the consistency and the production to match what we're expecting for like a late first-round pick. That's why we have him lumped out. But if he starts to put it together – if he has a string of like five, six games where he does some freaky things on the court in the NBL, he can absolutely come right back in that conversation. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I mean, he just needs to have that stretch where all of a sudden he kind of opens some eyes around the NBA of like, that's the guy we were thinking of. And maybe someone's enticed enough with them that they turn him into a little bit of a, you know, they draft and stash or they put him as a project that gets a lot of run in the G League his first year. I mean, who knows? There's there's a lot of routes. I just think right now, if he keeps going like this, it's going to be a guy that's like, I don't even know if he's a draft and stash. He might just be a guy that needs to play another year. And he needs to bet on himself, kind of like the Hugo Bessons, and see if he can skyrocket his draft stop up for the next year. So he's going to be interesting to keep an eye on. Well, speaking of Hugo. Yeah, let's I, get to I, it. I, I told you and I told Raphael when we did that preseason podcast, I fully admitted on air I had not watched any Hugo Besson tape. I had not seen him. I did not want to come to any conclusions or come to any overreactions just based on a few clips that I saw. So I gave you guys the floor. I haven't seen a ton still up to this point, but I've certainly seen more than I did a few months ago. Now that we have some NBL games underneath our belts, I'm intrigued. I'm not fully 100% bought in. I have him at 26 on my 2.0 board. The reason why I may have him lower than, than some other people is I don't quite know fully what he is. Like, I, I, yes, I think you just said it perfectly. Go ahead. I think you're spot on. Go ahead. I'm excited now. I can barely uh, sit, sit in my chair. I'm about to start pacing around the room. I, I, I wish we did have the cameras on for, for this <laughs> one now because I could just picture you literally like pacing like a mad dog. Damn it, Nathan. Come on. Let me just say something. But, no, I'm here with you, but that's why it's exciting to talk to you about this because I, I think we're going to see this eye to eye. But go ahead. Go ahead. You're on a roll. So on his on his best days – he looks like that tier three type of guard where maybe he's not the first, the second, or the third option on your team, but he's somebody in a good starting lineup. He can certainly be the fourth man because he can hit open shots. And then when you're playing him with second units, similar to like what Tyler Hero does to the Miami Heat, you can just see him fully take over those the, the those times in the game where he's with second units, he can cook on the second units because he doesn't necessarily have to worry about being a primary distributor. They kind of have him in off the playing with the bench unit or playing off the bench for one purpose, one purpose only. He's out there to take and make jump shots. And when he's able to take a number of jump shots in volume, in consistent rhythm, like when he's going like every other time up, up and down the floor, he's taking and making a jump shot, he can look really good. But when he's not out there for that specific purpose, when he's kind of just sitting in the corner or they're asking him to, to, to space the floor for everybody else or they're putting too much responsibility on his shoulders from a playmaking perspective, he doesn't look that great at times. And he kind of looks like somebody who I question, maybe I should have this guy like the in that 31 to, to 45 range on my board. Maybe I shouldn't have him 
as a first round type of prospect. But we talk about consistency, yes, but also production. I mean, he is producing. He's he's playing 28, uh, 28 minutes a night. He's putting up almost 16 points per game, almost five rebounds. He's shooting 35% from the three-point line, only 38% from the field, which does worry me a little bit. He is not finishing two-point shots all that well, but takes a lot of jump shots. He makes a good enough amount of them, and he's just that heat-check guy that I feel like every NBA team loves to have in some form or fashion. The, the question is, how high of a draft pick do you burn on that type of player? Do you burn a draft pick on that type of player? Or is that somebody who you'd rather have a veteran version of them? And you're kind of just looking for that player in free agency, not necessarily the draft. So I think it's more that balance of he, he is, he is as, as much of a combo guard as they come. I'm not sold on him firmly being a, a point guard. I don't think a lot of people necessarily are projecting him that way either. But if he's not a point guard, if he is more of a two, he's an undersized two. The types of shots that he essentially lives by, the type of decisions that he makes, is just how high are you willing to invest in that type of player. And I make some of these Tyler Hero comparisons stylistically. Tyler Hero, while he's not the quote-unquote longest guard that you've come across, he is also 6'5". So he's a full two inches taller than, than Basson. That definitely plays into it. That helps his evaluation. That's why um, Hero was, was able to be drafted as high as he was compared to Hugo, who we have like a late first round grade on. So that's my spiel. That's my rant. The floor is yours, Tyler. Tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm right. Tell me why I'm an idiot. Just, just give me all of your thoughts about Hugo. No, I think you're spot on because this is the guy right now. And if you haven't watched Hugo film, you need to you need to fl- throw that on on a night. And he is a, fun. I think that's the first thing that I wrote on my column. Believe it def- or not, that he's really fun. Definition of fun because I'm like you. He's one of these guys that I really thought he's he's feisty. He knows it. He he's got swagger. Watching him last year overseas with France, I just thought this guy could hit the ground running in the NBL because it was like, this is the perfect type of playing style for him. Um, He doesn't back down from anyone. He's also got some explosiveness that sneaks up on people. Like he can play above the rim if he wants, but he can, he can get hot from outside and stay hot in a hurry. And I mean, you saw that with, I think he had a three-game stretch this year where he had 20 or more points each game and it was shooting the lights out. So I'm like you because my question with Hugo is I don't know what he is. And when I say that is I'm agreeing with you. I don't know if he's a point guard, but he does a lot of damage with the ball in his hands. So then you're saying like I I feel like he's more of an off guard that thrives – when he gets pick and roll action, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Like the Tyler hero vibes. I completely get with you. Even like what golden state is doing. Set, right now. Set, like, set up a screen up top, let him turn the corner and just live with whatever happens. Don't yes. put too much responsibility on him to find somebody else, make a read or, or make multiple reads off of that initial pick and roll action. Just live with whatever type of shot he's, he's taking and, and hopefully making. I, I agree with that completely. And and what Golden State is doing right now with like Jordan Poole, I, I think that's the type of idea you could get with Hugo where it's, we're drafting this guy to come off the bench and sort of 
create nightmares for opposing defenses because he can do that with the ball in his hand, but you just need to have the confidence of the highs and the lows because when the highs are rolling, he can take over a game. And when the shot's not falling, you have to figure out, okay, what else is he going to impact for us? So I think Hugo's, you know, obviously turned some heads. When I asked around, people were like, yeah, Hugo's really impressed. And this was a guy that was buzzing last year and then kind of kept his name out of the draft and gambled on himself. And, you know, now he's going to be this guard that's kind of become almost like a veteran international player, even though he's going to be 21 on draft day. I think Hugo's going to be a guy that could climb a little further in the first round than maybe we're thinking, because that's the type of asset that, a playoff team would love to, you know, we need a spark off the bench. Perfect. Let's get this guy that yep. feisty, gritty, you know, this is, we joke every time, but this is the Miami heat pick. This is the golden state warriors pick. They just get a, a shooter who can do some damage off the bench and they live with it. And I think Hugo is never going to back down. Like I've hinted, you can tell on tape, like he is just gritty and, and he loves competition from when I asked around people, like I talked about Yang being this quiet guy. It, it sounds like it's opposite with Hugo. People levitate to him. He's got this infectious personality that he's, he's always upbeat. He's always trying to talk to his teammates. So that's stuff that NBA teams are going to love to hear. And, and I do think, you know, he's just making a case of we're waiting for some guys in that 16 to 30 range to kind of make some noise. And I think Hugo has been making some noise up into the second and now he's starting to make some noise as a potential first rounder so i'm a fan i'm i i was intrigued when he was going to go play in the nbl because i thought this was a guy that he can light up in a hurry and he's done that over a couple of games um he's had a couple of games also where he struggled so you're going to want to see if he can bounce back and kind of get back on that rhythm find that find that momentum again but definitely a fun one if you haven't watched hugo yet like just buckle up, sit down, and like Nathan said, grab yourself some some beer or some beverages and, and enjoy yourself for a good night because he's really, really fun to watch on tape. So here's my last question that I'll ask in relation to Hugo. And it's not necessarily a, a question that's pointed directly at Hugo. It's more of a, a philosophical question that involves him. But when you're an NBA team and you have a pick in, in, in the 20s or you have mm -hmm. a pick in like the early 30s, Maybe it's a decision process that would get me fired as an executive, but I sit here, I'm not able to consume NBA basketball every single night because if I were, I would probably just be an absolute madman who wouldn't be able to get any sleep because of mm -hmm. how much we have to watch evaluating these prospects heading into the draft. But I just get this sense that around the league, it is not as common for some of these teams to have good third or fourth guards off the bench and usually if you are have if you, if you do have one of those guys on your team that you consider a really good third or fourth guard they're usually making a lot more money towards the salary cap than what somebody like a hugo basson would be for example even on his rookie contract if he's picked in like the late first or the early second like if i know that hugo is going to be that type of shot making commodity off the bench for me he's that type of spark plug guard who I know won't let my my second unit offense die. He's going to be able to make things happen for me and keep my team in the game while my starting guards are out. That's the type of player that I would love to spend 
that level of a pick on. That's just part of my philosophy. That's why if that's the range you're telling me where I could get Hugo, I'm 100% all for it. And again, it's a philosophical question, Tyler. I don't know where you stand uh, on that side of the fence. If you're still trying to swing for as much upside as possible, or if that's an area of the draft where you feel like maybe I can fill out my team a little bit, maybe I can bring in somebody like Hugo. And I know that that portion of my lineup can be covered. If I think that he's like this instant impact type of player that I'm projecting him to be. Yeah, you're setting off alarms in my head because this is a specific topic I absolutely am passionate about. Um, I'm a big believer of even when you get to the late lottery towards 30, you got to get guys that are going to move the needle forward. And it doesn't have like swinging for the fences when you're in the outside the lottery towards the 30s. When you swing for the fence, yeah, I understand if you do it, if you have a team that, you know, like the Brooklyn Nets where, you know, you're saying let's, let's take a big cut because our roster is pretty set. But I think if you're a playoff team where you could find an asset in that range that is going to continue to move the needle forward, you should jump all over that. And I think that's the type of guy Hugo could be where it's like you're saying, Nathan, like this could be a guy that your, your guards come out of the game. He's going to keep you rolling because he understands how to play. He could also, get hot and give you a boost you weren't even expecting. I just always think that teams in that range, you know, playoff teams that draft smart, they usually pick guys that are going to help. And I know it's like, sounds crazy to say right now, but that's where you get the, the Chris Duarte went earlier than I think a lot of us expected, but it was a smart pick because they knew a veteran player like that could come in and help right away. You know, when you get to the end and we see the Warriors pick guys like that, the Heat do it all the time. Well, you you brought up Brooklyn. I'm actually glad you brought up Brooklyn because they chose Cam Thomas at right. the end of the first round, who maybe not by upside, but by player role and right. sort of archetype, they're very similar players when you compare him and Hugo. And maybe Cam Thomas isn't ready to play as significant of a role as I initially thought before the season for Brooklyn this year and then when they get into the playoffs, but I can guarantee you they're going to be the reaping of the rewards on that pick years two, three, and four. And he's 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 on a rookie contract. They're the, he's 100 percent going to have his option picked up. He's going to be there for three more years after this one. And when you factor in that, that team is maxed out with with other contracts because of the stars that they're paying on that team, they're going to thank their lucky stars that they have somebody like Cam Thomas to come in off the bench and help solidify some of those second units that have veteran role players a part of them to help limit mistakes and keep the game afloat. But none of those guys are likely going to be dynamic shot makers like a Cam Thomas is. And maybe Hugo Basson could be the same thing for an NBA team. Yeah. And just because you're drafting those guys to potentially help out and, you know, it doesn't mean they have to do it right away as a rookie. Even no, if it takes four, four year. years before the next contract, essentially. Exactly. I mean, Cam Thomas next year is probably going to be this guy that we're talking about as like a sophomore breakout candidate just because he's going to have been in the system, been around all these veterans. He's going to work his ass off in the offseason. Like, he's going to help that team push the needle forward. And that's just the type of guy Hugo could be. Um, I, I think there's always these guys in the draft where – you know, off the top of my head, we, we talk about Christian Braun. That's another guy that could all of a sudden move the needle forward just because he, you know his skill set and you know what he's going to be able to provide for an NBA team. Hugo's going to be this guy that you could come in 
And, you know, I'm not saying he's going to be a starting point guard, but I'm saying he could be this combo guard off the bench that all of a sudden injects some life into your rotation and understands how to play within the system, understands when to get his shot. And when he's hot, he carries you. And, you know, when he's not, you you take him off the court and get the starters back in. But I'm just saying, like, th- there's these guys in every draft that teams in that range the smart ones target them because they know what they're going to provide for this team moving forward. And I think Hugo could be one of those guys that starts circling that waters when, you know, starts becoming one of those candidates to get selected by a really smart team that has their eye on him. I think that 25 to 30 range is perfect for him. Yes. Uh, if, if you had asked me to bet on where he gets drafted or a range of picks, that would 100% be where my money went. And that means a smart and good team is likely going to get their hands on Hugo and the, the, the rich just get richer in the NBA. I find that to be more true uh, more often than not. So that's where we're going to leave the Hugo conversation. The very last player I wanted to bring up quickly on this podcast, Tyler, I know you haven't done a film deep dive on Michael Foster Jr. First of all, how fucking dare you for not doing a, a deep dive <laughs> on film before this podcast? No, I'm just kidding. But so, so, I want to frame a question to you like this, and okay. this is more more of another philosophical type of question, but I did not know the backstory on Michael Foster before I started watching some of the Showcase Vegas film from this. Well, TV hit us with it. Hit the listeners with it. They might not know. Well, I, I don't think a lot of NBA executives might have known either because I think once they learned this information or got a better understanding of who Michael Foster is and a little bit more of his journey up to this point, you start sitting around you start thinking, all right, maybe maybe where we were grading him out, maybe that grade's a little more passable now that we have some of that information. But he's, he's another one of these guys who hasn't been playing, you know, high-level team type of basketball before he was before he was 14 years old so he's like 18 years old right now i believe gonna be 19 no i think he's gonna be 19 in 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 like less than a week so he's gonna be 19 years old that means he's been playing basketball at like this type of a level for five years and that's way less than a lot of his peers he's likely playing with and against right now He's playing in the G League, which you and I have had conversations about. We mentioned it earlier on this podcast. We value an environment like the G League. You're going up against grown men or trying to put food on their tables for their families. It's a very competitive environment. Not, not That doesn't mean it's amazing basketball. It's not always the best basketball to watch. Can 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 sometimes not be the best product to consume overall, but it's a competitive environment. He's playing against grown men. He's We come back to this consistency and production he's been consistent and he's producing 14.8 points per game 8.8 rebounds two assists 2.2 blocks on his best days i wrote this in the column he reminds me of a jamichael green type of player with a little more bounce and maybe just a scouting trope of mine I, I love somebody like a Jermichael Green, that, that big-bodied four or five man who can stretch the floor for you, who you trust to, to make good decisions with the basketball. He rebounds it well on both ends. And maybe he's not you know a, a rim protector in the most traditional sense, but he can be a deterrent, and he's still a big body who, when he's playing with that toughness, that ferocity, 
that you see from like a Jermichael Green, for example, they can still impact the game defensively, maybe not as much as you would like, but they can still impact it nonetheless. And if that's the type of player that Foster can become, like Foster's biggest criticism up to this point was that on both ends at times, actually more often than we like to be able to admit, he doesn't look like what he's doing. He doesn't look like he knows what he's doing on the court. But when you factor in the information I just gave you, where are you sort of at philosophically, player uh, Tyler, on, on grading players on that type of a curve if you know that they don't have as much playing experience or high-level playing experience as some of their peers? Are you willing to give somebody like that more of a pass and maybe give them a grade on their production and how consistent they've been, not necessarily just do they always – look like they know what they're doing on the court at all, at all times. Yeah, I mean, evaluation's the fun, easy part, but getting the intel in the background is almost more important. Because he's buzzing. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a guy who is he's climbing up boards. You're starting to see people put him at the end of the first round. I know the ESPN broadcasters were like, why isn't this guy a top 30 consensus type of player? It's like when you hear stuff like this, and now you see the buzz, it's like, you put him up against some of these guys who aren't producing. He's he's producing. Why isn't he a top thirty guy? Well, and that's what I was, you know, going in about is that when you find a raw guy with this intel and that background, where you're talking about, you know, he hasn't been playing for his whole entire life, and you you combine that with the production, you know, you like you said, it's around almost fifteen, nine, and over two blocks a game, and almost shooting 50% from the field as an 18-year-old in the G League. And it, there's definitely intrigue there. There's definitely upside. This is the name that's been buzzing. And it's not just in a couple places. It's all over the place. You keep seeing Michael Foster pop, pop up everywhere. So that's where you got to start going like, okay, that's someone you got to pay attention to because obviously NBA teams are paying attention to, especially with that background. You know, like, off the top of my head, I think DeAndre Ayton was a similar guy where he, his playing career got started kind of late and started producing at a crazy level. That's where teams got so intrigued with him. So, yeah, it, Michael Foster is one of those guys I added to my list quickly because you just keep hearing his name. You keep seeing him pop up. And the production is definitely encouraging, especially for, like you're saying, doing that in the G League compared to what we're talking about with the overtime elite earlier. I mean, G League's a whole nother world. You know, he's a big man going against G League big men that are most likely pretty going to give him a tough time on a nightly basis when it comes to their physicality. And some of those guys are 24, 25. So I'm definitely intrigued with Michael Foster. It's one of those guys, like I said, I've written down. I, I need to watch him more seriously now um, because when you watched him the first couple of games, he just looked like a guy that was a little lost. Yep. But now all of a sudden it looks like a guy that's starting to kind of figure things out. And he's putting the production up that you want to see from a raw 18-year-old. He's going to be one to watch. And there's like – this is the time of the year these names start popping up that start creeping up towards the end of the first round. And this is a guy maybe that teams look at as this is a project that all of a sudden we could reap the rewards a year in where all of a sudden he takes serious strides while developing with us, maybe getting some more G league time, maybe, you know, becoming a strategic rotation asset early on. It, it, it all depends, but you like to see the jump in production. You like to see the consistency of 
late. And I'm like you with, with that background and the Intel, um, it, it's definitely making him a very intriguing prospect moving forward. I mean, this, this back end, like I've said, this, this 20 to 45 range, but especially that 20 through 30, I mean, it, it's really going to come down to who's able to put together the, the, the highest level of production on the most consistent basis. And it's this this second half of the college season is really going to be a, a prove it to me. If if you really are that good, then take this spot, earn it, and this is where you'll be on my big board. But if you're if you're struggling for different reasons, if you're not able to put it together, maybe you're going to fall out. And maybe it's an instance with some of these guys that I could list off, like a, like a Peyton Watson we've talked about. I didn't have Max Christie on my board this time around. Some of these guys, I just feel like it would be better off for them to, to go back to college for another year, come back, boost up their draft stock, and then we're having a different conversation hopefully next year. But if some of those situations occur and if a few more of them occur towards the back end of this board that I've put together, then Michael Foster is one of those guys. He's like one of those, those next guys in who could absolutely jump up into the top 30 of my board. And the more I sit here and think about it, the, the more that I've watched him, the, the more I kind of come to that conclusion. Maybe I should have even had him top 30 this time around. Now, the good news for, for, for that instance is that I'm going to get to see Foster and Hardy and Daniels and Beauchamp up close towards the end of the month when they come over to my neck of the woods. They're going to play the Delaware Bluecoats. I know Corey's going to see him in Long Island as well. So him and I are going to be able to have a meeting of the minds and sit down and compare notes, hopefully on this podcast. So I'll, I'll get him and Albert back on because I mean, Tyler, we can't talk about the G league without those guys. I mean, shit, I feel like every time I talk about the G league, I have Corey and Albert on, but hopefully that's going to be a meeting of the minds where we just, we, we sit and we look at each other and we go, all right, Michael Foster, like, like, let's do it. Let, let's get him in here. And I'm hoping that's the case. I'll be excited to, to watch him in person and hopefully talk to a few people as well. By the way, Tyler, we, we need to, you need to help me out in that group chat over there. We need to get more no ceilings people on this podcast. You need to like put something in our group chat. that's like, I, I promise Nate's fine. He doesn't bite. Like you can go on his show. You're going to live to tell the tale. You'll be fine. Like I want some of those other guys on here. Not, not just you yourself, Corey and Albert. I love you guys, but Say, say something right now publicly to them. Like, you guys are all amazing people. We need to get you on this podcast. We need to start doing some more podcasts with all of us together. Yeah, we need to make them walk the plank. You know, I need to get you and every, everyone on the backcourt pod as well. But, I, I mean, it's it's getting to that time of the year where uh, things are going to get real serious in the draft world. So I'm sure we're going to get plenty of those guys on Draft Deeper and – it's it's getting fun. This is where we're really getting the we we passed the halfway mark. So now we're really starting to heat things up, add a little bit more coal to the fire. So I'm pumped up. I'm pumped for future draft deeper episodes. It's it's gonna be a it's gonna be a wild ride. Oh, and you know I will I will go to war with you on the backcourt violation podcast. Yes, whenever you, whenever you want to have me on. So you you let me know the time and the place, and I'll I'll come ready. I'll come in hot. So. No, no need to worry about that one. But with that being said, that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on as always. Do it, man. This is your time. Give the spiel. Give the no ceiling spiel. Let everybody know everything about it.
We're at noceilings.soapstack.com. Absolutely free. Uh, as much NBA draft content as you possibly can manage for your mind. And um, it's, it's going to keep heating up. And I'm really excited for some upcoming segments we have with No Ceilings. Um, we're going to have our big board coming out this week, I believe. And then our 2.0 mock draft, which is going to be completely chaotic, will probably be <laughs> later this month, which I'm pretty pumped about. But um, no, it's been a blast. Thank you, Nathan, for having me on here as always. And um, I'm excited to keep the train rolling. And don't just subscribe to my podcast where wherever you can get your podcast. Don't just subscribe to Backcourt Violation Podcast or the Draft Act either. Don't just subscribe to those shows. Also subscribe to the No Sealage Podcast where yes. Mr. Tyler Metcalf has been doing a fantastic job hosting episodes over there. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself each time I've sat down and listened to one of those. So definitely make sure you subscribe over there. Make sure you subscribe to the Substack. You can find all of these shows that I've just mentioned wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can find video versions of the podcast on our YouTube channel, No Ceilings TV. Please make sure you subscribe there as well. We just put out a video version of our first mock draft today in case you weren't able to read the written version of our 1.0 mock draft. You can watch the YouTube video. Tyler did a great job of putting that together. You might even hear me speaking on that video i know me me doing audio content outside of my own podcast that's crazy right whoever <laughs> would, would have saw that coming but definitely make sure you're tuned into all channels with no ceilings with myself with tyler with the other tyler with Corey, albert nick evan we are all working our tails off trying to provide the best draft content for you guys the most frequent draft content I would say we're, we're doing a really good job. I know we're doing a really good job when we share so many pieces of content one day that I can't even keep up with um, sharing all of them to the masses on, on social media. So I couldn't be more thrilled with all of the work that we're doing. So make sure that you are buckled in. Definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Sit tight. We have more big guests coming around the corner. I'm going to be recording a podcast, like I said earlier, with Chuck from Chucking Darts Tomorrow. Chuck is the one guy I go to if I don't fully understand a prospect or I can't buy into a prospect, I'm going to ask Chuck about him, but I'm not just going to do it privately. I'm going to grill him publicly on my podcast. We're going to get some answers now, but I, I love doing podcasts with Chuck. Just make sure you're, you're ready to tune in for, for a long podcast. Him and I usually put out some, some true monologues together, but it's all, all in good fun. I love having Chuck on. He's one of my favorite guests. And then next Monday, I'm going to be recording a podcast with a very special guest. Tyler, you ready for this announcement? Yes. Keep the big guests rolling on the Draft Deeper pod. Matt Badcock from yes. basketballnews.com is going to be coming on Draft Deeper. They just released a big board update over at basketballnews.com. I will have some questions about some, some prospects to be named later. Him and I will do a few big board comparisons of our own, along with doing some big board comparisons next week again the January update of that podcast series with Stephen Gillespie from Draft Capital. So, so much content planned in the pipeline. Stay tuned. Subscribe. Thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.